Dimelang Avusheni and hello hi Mzansi. Welcome back to Sisters Without Shame, a No Holds Barred podcast that is proudly brought to you by Healthful Mzansi. I'm your host, Nolu Tandon Lakani, and I'm here to hold your hand as you seek the answers to those crackling bones and suspicious bumps and lumps you dare not speak of in public. Mzanzi, happy youth day. You know, there is no doubt that young people in Mzanzi are faced with a myriad of problems from unemployment to high rates of HIV and AIDS. This week, we are joined by human rights activist Steve Litzike, who unpacks the impact of HIV and AIDS on young women and girls. Litzike is the founder of Access Chapter 2, an organization that strives to promote and protect human rights of LGBT plus people and women and girls in Mzanzi. Steve also serves as the South African National AIDS Council co-chairperson alongside Deputy President of Mzanzi, David Mabuza. Steve, let's talk about the youth's attitude towards HIV and AIDS. It seems that, you know, we are more concerned about getting pregnant as a result of having unprotected sex instead of contracting a sexually transmitted disease. And it has been a battle for years to encourage youth to practice safe sex. How can we improve on encouraging youth to practice safe sex? You know, because youth is a really broad definition, it really caters for young people up to the age of 35. But when you look at our HIV response, we got to understand our commitment as a country around who is really affected we got to really break down tailored intervention, looking at key and vulnerable population because we understand our epidemic. And that helped us so much in how we respond to the epidemic. And I did say that we are a multi-sectoral council. Now, that broadness of definition of youth, we got to understand who is vulnerable amongst young people. And you would have seen data that has been presented over years globally, but also at national level. That speaks around new HIV infections amongst adolescent girls and young women. And you also look at who really are the people that are infecting adolescent girls and young women, because we know whether we're talking teenage pregnancy and we seem to even normalize, at what stage do we know the teenage pregnancy at a particular age, it's statutory rape. And also the fact that we have high levels of gender-based violence in South Africa. We know the issue of gender, of power, dynamics, of patriarchy, of misogyny, and how this affects adolescent girls and young women. So we've seen an increase of new infections amongst adolescent girls and young women over the years. And these are girls between the ages of 15 and 24 years old. And part of our response was to determine how we respond and how we give special attention to adolescent girls and young women. So if you take a look at what has happened between 2010 and 2017, there was indeed a decline in new infection. This is global phenomena, but we've seen also decline here in South Africa. If you and I spoke five years ago, you would be asking me how much is the new infection that I contributed amongst adolescent girls and young women. We used to have up to 2,500 new infections weekly. If you calculate this in a year, you have over 90,000 new infections. This is just on adolescent girls and young women. 
you're not even talking about what is the issue with adolescent boys and young men. You're not even talking about other key population like LGBTI or even sex workers and so forth. So the data that has been collected over years, we got to understand what needed to be done. Now you bring even the element of teenage pregnancy. Remember, without any condom use, if you have young people that are sexually active, even with older men that the Tembisa model had shown and demonstrated us that these young girls are infected by older men and these are men over the age of 36 and so forth, you got to even understand that you're not only just talking HIV transmission, you're also talking pregnancy, you're also talking STI, sexually transmitted infection, and many others. And these are dynamics that we consistently have to deal with when collecting data, when looking at interventions that needs to be done. How do we respond to the family planning? What are the things around comprehensive sexuality education that we need to embark? And you would know South Africa is one of the countries that have been implementing comprehensive sexuality education since 2000. But right now, just about two years ago, we see a rise of parents saying this should not happen. You are teaching our children sex and so forth. People are rejecting scientifically proven social behavior element of teaching and allowing and empowering young people to make empowered decisions as they develop. So we have quite a lot of issues that we need to battle with. And at the same time, which is the last point I want to raise, we need to understand that conditions of young people do vary. They are also influenced by class. They're influenced by geographical location race, and many others. So if you are even in the deep rural areas, you are even in dire situation. If you are even black. So there are quite a number of intersectional issues that we have to think about when we look at prevention interventions and even treatment interventions for that matter. I would think that a simple solution would be for these older men who commit statutory rape acts just to keep it in their pants or something like that instead of, you know, ruining a young girl's life with not just a baby but a sexually transmitted disease. These are social issues that we fight with. For me, the simple solution, it's really about accountability. Who holds these men accountable? If I'm a parent, and let me not even talk about the question of if, I'm a parent, Today, my daughter turns 20 years, and we know to what extent we can protect children when they are close to us and so forth. But immediately, if they're exposed to society, to schools, to church, and all of that, they may be vulnerable. So I have constantly been worried, even if I have equipped my own daughter with the correct knowledge and understanding of what is known and how to report human rights violation. And I think we need to do it. We need to give every child the opportunity, the same privilege that I've given and I've extended to my daughter. It's the privilege that must be reaching every young person because they are our children. Every now and then, whenever I go anywhere, I regard every children I come across as my child. I speak to them as my children and I advise them as my children. And I think that's quite important to speak about accountability. So if parents know that their child have been exposed to sexual violence, you know, this morning I had a case in my office, a 19 year old came to report sexual assault in the office because we do provide legal support and psychosocial support. And you can see, and this child is saying, I know my rights, I screamed and I did one, two, three, and this man violated me. To a point this child even have panic attacks 
that whenever he hears a male voice, you know, he's getting panic attacks. So we needed to provide psychosocial support. And this is now the role of parents, but it's also about the role of society. Every member of society is responsible. If you're a pastor, if you're a neighbor, if you are a police officer and you know that somebody's violated, act up, show up and speak out. These men must be held accountable. And our justice system, it's one that we also need to watch very closely. I think it's a little bit improving because of the recent laws that have been enacted by the president of the republic. For the first time since the passing of the GBV laws, I saw a gang rape that we have been monitoring for the last year of a 19-year-old lesbian who was raped by these two boys. These boys were sentenced to life. And we shouldn't just sentence people just to life when there's murder. We must hold people to account, our justice system and redress. And the only expression I, I could see on the survivor, when she literally went on her knees, and you can see that that is justice. So we cannot delay any justice in any way. So for me, accountability is key. But also we must name and shame. Of course, we've seen very interesting naming and shaming, whether it's of uh, Me Too campaigns and all of those different campaigns. It's really holding people to account. One of the laws that was passed, it's about the public register of oppressors, of sexual offenders. And I think it's important, even if they have not reached their level of conviction, because we know how people buy off cases and so forth. They must be named and shamed, because that's how we get rid of violation. And that's how men must take accountability, even in society. A number of men have also worked around gender activism. And these men are actually saying these are alternative ways as opposed to being a toxic man in society. And it's teaching men because we understand how toxic masculinity and patriarchy has also contributed to how we find men now. But it's no excuse to violate other people. You can make that conscious decision that I will not violate anybody. Doesn't say anything about your maleness or just leaving a person alone. Thank you for that, Steve. So it's also Pride Month. I also wanted to ask the question of whether gender non-conforming people experience any challenges in terms of accessing healthcare services. And if so, what are the challenges that they experience? Did we have this observed month internationally, which is Pride Month? And you know, this was a protest in 1969. This was a protest by Marcia Johnson and many other activists were raising the flag high that LGBTI people matter, queer people matter. And here we are within the health dispensation where we want to see equality as enshrined in the constitution, where we want to see section 27 that speaks about the right to health, the protection, the fulfillment, and of course, the promotion of these rights are fundamental in many ways. And LGBTI people continue to experience these challenges. We've seen various research, even the recent research on the Love Not Hate campaign has demonstrated over 27% of LGBTI people experiencing discrimination, stigma, and health services. So it's quite important to realize what is being done. Now, over time, many civil society organizations across the country, including our own government, have put in minimum standards of operation, guidelines to provide services for anybody. This is regardless of their sexual orientation and gender identity. We've seen all these guidelines implemented. I think there's always a shift of 
human resource. You train today, the nurse resign tomorrow, you've got a new nurse. So these also are approaches that are looked at by many organizations, academic institutions, even about whether people while they're in university, can they not be trained while they're that you train somebody while it's still early to avoid future implications. So there are quite a number of campaigns. Recently, we launched the Access Chapter 2, the Right Thing campaign. And we're working with different institutions who are firm and who are saying that we are competent and we are ready to serve. So there's change. It may be in a snail pace, but there's change in a bit. What factors play a role in the increases of the HIV prevalence? What can be done to protect society? I think we always have to understand that there are multiple drivers of the epidemic itself. There are biological factors, which speaks about the biological effect, how women are prone to be easily infected if there's no protection. There's also behavioral, there's social, and there's structural. And some of the social and behavior speaks a lot about the power dynamics. We understand how society has also contributed to this. So I think there are many solutions that are put forward. There are many programs. A few years ago, SANEC through the office of the deputy president, at that time it was President Ramaphosa, launched a campaign called She Conquers, which was pooling multiple stakeholders to invest resources on a young girl adolescent girl, but also it was not ignoring adolescent boy and young men because we also don't want this man or young man to grow up and be forgotten in any way. So there are various campaigns that were launched. There has been introduction of PrEP, which is the pre-exposure prophylaxis. So for those who may be vulnerable, they can be initiated in PrEP who may potentially unable to negotiate condom use. They can be on PrEP. And right now, even with the latest scientific evidence, there's going to be an injectable PrEP. So currently we have oral PrEP. So it's those kind of interventions that have been introduced. But similarly, should you actually feel that you're exposed to HIV, you can go back to FD Health facility and ask for post-exposure prophylaxis. You don't have to be diagnosed with new infection or new HIV infection. You can prevent it, whether pre or post. But you also can stand up for your right, enable yourself, build resilience in a way that gives you power, that gives you conquering mode and take decisions for yourself. So there are quite a lot of interventions. Many civil society organizations are working on the ground and they are backbones of society. So I think it's quite important for society to reach out, for parents to reach out, for young people to reach out. Their communities are there and they are there to serve them. It's June and, you know, among the Pride Month, the Youth Month, it's also Men's Month. What are some of the barriers that men experience in healthcare as well? I've had the opportunity many years ago to work and focus on men's health, where we wanted to understand why men are not going to facilities. Indeed, men have got what we call the low health seeking behavior. Because most of what society has prescribed men should do and should live and should look like, men have often taken that burden to wanting to be strong. So men don't necessarily, when they are sick, they will be like, I, I'll be right. When they're diagnosed, they want to take their partner's treatment and say, I'll drink from yours. You know, so they have a very bad health-seeking behavior. 
So you need to look at how do you create an enabled environment where men can come and ordinarily they can find affirmative services. Men also have got self-esteem issues. Imagine they're thinking, I'm going to take off my pants. So they do suffer from all of this. So you need to then say, how do we diversify the human resource within the health sector? But also, even if you have female nurses or health professionals, they are equipped because they are professionals. They have taken care of society. They've taken care of men. So we need to create campaigns that reach out to men. We need to reach men where they are because they're thinking, oh my God, I need to work so that I can put food on the table. I don't have time to lose a day's salary. So go and reach out to men where they are. If they're working in the mine, introduce health clinics in mines so that it's the closest proximity. Majority of people that goes to health services are women. And that's why we understand the epidemic very well amongst women. But we want men to do so. You have a campaign that was launched by the men's sector, which is Takuwani Rime, that men can mobilize each other. They can reach out to each other and saying that we must stand in strength to also be part of change, to take care of ourselves, but also to take care of society because it's the responsibility they also have to. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Sisters Without Shame, Steve. For more on youth and HIV and AIDS, check out healthformzanzi.co.za. Now remember, if you are in a medical bind and looking for a shoulder to cry on, you can send an email to hello at healthformzanzi.co.za or you can send a WhatsApp to 076-132-0454. Nah, I would never blue tick you, babes. Every hour, 30 more young people are infected with HIV, and most of them are young women and girls. Like Steve said, what matters is ensuring that people who need access to information and treatment get it. That brings us to the end of episode 46 of Sisters Without Shame, proudly brought to you by Healthform Zanzi. From me, Nolutando Nakani, have a great week and remember to show your girl some love by sharing this podcast with a friend. <laughs>